Hi there. I would like to update you on N-Square, the conference we've been talking about it on this podcast. I'm really proud of the great programming, exceptional speakers, and unbelievable excitement we generated for N-Squared. However, the raging COVID Delta variant and the uncertainty it poses on travel and safety across the nation have made us rethink whether our celebration and excitement should be put on hold. We have decided to move the meeting to February 24th, 2022, which also happens to be Steve Jobs' birthday. Steve Jobs believed in the power of technology for transforming education. He will remain the pioneer for mobile technologies for generations to come. And he has been my role model for innovation, entrepreneurship, and end-to-end integrated design. I would like to celebrate his legacy by discussing the future of education at N Squared on February 24, 2022. You can find more information about N Squared at nsquared.events. Again, that's nsquared.events. I look forward to seeing you in February. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. I am your host, Kieran Kuritala. I have with me Dr. Mike Bills. Mike Bills joined the Atlas RTX as a Chief Operating Officer in October of 2020. In 2021, he was promoted to Atlas RTX's president. He has been a successful entrepreneur and CEO in a broad set of industries. He brings passion, energy, innovation, and a keen eye for strategy into every endeavor. Mike's career as a business leader got off to an early start when he became the chief information officer for feature films for families in age 22. At that time, feature films for families, a producer, distributor of family-oriented entertainment, had over 500 employees and $35 million in revenue. During his time at Feature Film for Families, Mike led nearly every business function before ultimately becoming president of the company. When he left to pursue his entrepreneurial endeavors of his own, the business was generating over $70 million in revenue. After leaving Feature Films for Families in 2004, Mike sought a turnaround opportunity and led the purchase of two troubled manufacturers of transportation equipment, the strategic and operational turnarounds, and the sale to a strategic buyer. In addition to that, in 2009, he founded Call Assistant, a technology-enabled BPO contact center business. Mike and his founding team bootstrapped the business from nothing to $13 million in recurring revenue in just over two years. In early 2013, Call Assistant was sold to private equity, and Mike continued to serve as a CEO for the PE owners through end of 2014. Mike is a graduate of Westminster College in Salt Lake City, where he continues to serve on the Board of Trustees. He completed his PhD at Antioch University, Graduate School of Leadership and Change, where his research focused on higher education, governance, and leadership. A former nationally ranked triathlete, Mike now focuses on being fit rather than fast and spends most of his time mountain biking, road cycling, and skiing, sometimes all three in the same day. Mike, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you very much. So you are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, certainly want to get right into it, especially about higher education and the equity gaps. You know, there's a lot of discussion about higher education and whether it's really affordable or whether it's really accessible. 
even with this new model about flipped classrooms, digital classrooms, hybrid classrooms, there's a lot of discussion about whether the technology we use as a medium for delivery is affordable and accessible for everybody. So from your perspective, leading all the different initiatives and your own education in higher education and also your leadership at RTX, where do you see are the glaring problems facing higher education, especially with respect to equity and accessibility to education? Well, I guess I'd start at kind of the beginning of higher education in the United States. So higher education in the United States was literally built to be incredibly exclusive. So it was wealthy white males were the only people that were welcome at you know, Harvard, which was the original college in the United States, and then William and Mary, the University of Virginia, so on, so on. And higher education was built to exclude most people. And then there have been advanced, you know, the GI Bill that helped to make education more egalitarian, the advent of the very American idea of the community college helped with open access so more people could get in. But yet still, until quite recently, the U.S. News and World Report, so the arbiter of what's a good school and what's a less good school, literally used how many people were excluded as one of the primary factors to say how good a school was. So they weren't evaluating on how well they, and they still don't, on how well they educate people. It's how selective they are coming in. So many colleges and universities still focus on trying to be more and more and more selective. And in fact, if you try to become more egalitarian and let more students in, the US News and World Report rankings, actually that will still punish you. And so we have this foundational, right from the beginning, higher education was built on being exclusive And we still have all of these powerful forces right now that reinforce this attitude that somehow keeping people out of your institution is a virtue. No, I totally agree. My son is a senior in high school, and we kind of look at it, unfortunately, with the same lens that you're talking about, only because that's how the society makes you believe, right? Because if the acceptance rate is 8%, and if my kid can get in, that's my huge status symbol. That means that my kid is extremely smart. And a lot of times Ivy League schools get away with that. And I think some of it is definitely a societal issue on how we see ourselves higher in the pecking order just because something that's very uber selective, like an Ivy League, has accepted our son or our daughter. But it's also some of it is also based on how they fudge the numbers, if you will. For example, if you look at Harvard, we receive brochures from Harvard at our home or Yale or Stanford, but we don't need to do that. Everybody knows who they are, but I think they purposefully send this literature to everybody so that they can get as many applicants as possible. And the more applicants they get, the more applicants they reject and more they reject, they lower their acceptance rate Ergo, that's why they're very expensive because they're very selective. I think you're absolutely correct. The acceptance rate issue is a two-pronged problem. Number one is, A, it is somehow giving them a ability to say, yeah, we are low acceptance. That means that that gives us the right to charge us obscene amount of money. But the other end of it is the 
colleges that are extremely accepting, like community colleges, vocational schools, ASUs and WGUs are looked down upon, not by other institutions, but by us parents and kids as well. Like, how do you see that problem being solved? Because it sounds more of a parent decision-making problem as much as a parent decision-making problem as institutions trying to take advantage of it. Well, you'll find no bigger fan of community colleges than, than I. Although I say that for me personally because of the experience that I had, because I came from a low socioeconomic background. I'm first in my family to graduate from college and I was totally unprepared academically. And so I needed an open access institution. So I'm really grateful to Salt Lake Community College that it was there because I wouldn't be where I am today without that experience. I say that though also through a lens of having done lots of research in higher education. So I know that the odds of my son, who's also a senior, getting a four-year degree are lower if he starts at a community college. So as a parent, I do want my son to enroll right in a four-year institution and be there all four years and finish in four years. So I guess where I, where I would hope that we could go is that we can focus on the issue because community colleges, that is where the lion's share of people from historically underserved populations enroll in college in the first place. So what I think we need to do is, is focus on those outcomes it's great that they're open access and students can get in, but there's very little benefit for them just having been there. If they don't complete and transfer and obtain a degree, then what we have is we just have more people with some student loan debt and no degree. I'm not saying that the four-year colleges do a better job than community colleges on it because access to education is not just opening the door and saying, okay, sure, we'll admit everybody who applies. That's great, but if the student is not ready for a college education, if the student has failed in his senior math courses or he got a C or something like that, and he still got admitted to community college, there is no on-ramp for that. And I see all these great tools from Amazon or Google with respect to artificial intelligence or machine learning, where when I log into Amazon and they know exactly what groceries I want to buy to what pen I like to use or what electronic my son uses. And I can go to any other store, whether it's department store or electronic store, and they know a lot less about me than a typical university does, but they can provide a lot more value with the limited data they have because of the power of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and social engineering, let's call it that. Why can't community colleges or four-year colleges take advantage of this great technology environment we're in right now? So they can, and some have. You can have an experience for a student that is exactly like what you just described with Amazon, because a student can come to the website, and on that website can be a, a really sophisticated, a conversational AI, digital assistant, you may call that a chatbot. And I'm not talking about science fiction either, because this is what our company does. A student can engage, and we know who the student is. And being integrated with this, let's say they're a prospective student, we're integrated with the CRM. We know when they've applied. We know when they filled out their FAFSA form, or if they haven't, and they need to be nudged to do so. 
and we know once they've been admitted. And so then we can engage them with a chatbot via SMS and then focus on getting that student enrolled and to show up on the first day. And that AI can be present when they're a student. And you speak to community colleges. So the retention and graduation rates in community colleges are abysmal. And there's a ton of academic research that shows that the more contact these students have with advisors and other staff members, counselors, what you will add, the higher likely they are to graduate. But you take something like the California Community College System has a lot of data available about their ratio of students to counselors. And it's somewhere between like 500 at the best and like 1,200 students to counselors at the worst. Well, at that scale, there's no way a student can get help from a human being, but they can from an AI digital assistant that's available 24-7, 365, that speaks 100 languages, and that is tied into the student information system and the LMS, and so it can personalize the interaction with the student. The other cool thing about that is the chatbot isn't going to judge a student. So a student can talk to the chatbot about sensitive topics, topics about which they might be embarrassed to address with a human and get assistance and they can get it on their time, you know, 24 seven. So I would imagine that most people in the academy would argue that the optimal experience for the student is to connect them with a human staff member who is knowledgeable about them, can help them out. And frankly, I don't think I would argue with that. However, there's no way that we can get the funding to have, and we're also not going to have them available 24-7. We're just not going to have the faculty and staff available to help all those students. But with AI, we can help those students. And that is so much better than what we have now, which is there just simply aren't enough staff members and faculty to help out those students. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think that's where I was going with this concept that we only look at access to education as well, you know, community colleges admit everybody, so they must be, they're really good. But what good is admitting 10,000 students and you're only graduating 120 of them or 1,200 of them every six years? That's 12% graduation rate is unacceptable. That's not to say four-year colleges are doing a much better job, but, you know, they're definitely doing better than 8 to 12% job. But there's also other metrics related to community colleges that come into play with that. A lot of times people go to community colleges as commuting students or transient students. So let's keep all of that aside. I'm quite intrigued by the concept of artificial intelligence and chatbots helping the students with things like, for example, social intelligence or emotional issues, or just like help desk type things. But I'm intrigued by when you said about connecting with the student information system, are you saying that chatbots can help if a student says, should I take Math 101 or Math 201 in my first semester? Or if a student says, I'm having trouble with this assignment by Professor Bills and I need help. What type of questions can chatbots answer without a human on the back? And what type of questions do they need a human on the other side behind the scenes to help them? And how is that interaction or integration with humans coming along? I'm glad that you brought that up because our approach to chatbots is that humans and AI are better together. So our chatbots are very smart, but they're not human beings. So they're not there to supplant human beings. They're there to augment the human staff. So 
questions such as should I take you know math 101 or whichever semester they absolutely can be done with a chatbot because if the chatbot knows the courses that you've already taken the chatbot can know what grades you got so the chatbot could also suggest areas that let's say you're a nursing student and the chatbot because of information that it's getting about you personally it can know that you're not doing well in these science courses and you're likely to not succeed as a nursing student. So it can recommend that you make an appointment with a human staff member so that that staff member can then engage with you because that's where a human's gonna do a better job than AI is to explain to the students in an empathetic way why nursing might not be for you and let's explore what else you're passionate about and maybe change your major. That's an example of where the digital assistant and the human being are reinforcing what each one is good at. So the chatbot's good at diagnosing, it's good at handling repetitive tasks, but when you need something that's that needs a lot of explanation and even exploration by, by the staff member, in that case, the two working together as a team deliver an optimal experience for the student. That's amazing. All of this sounds like science fiction, but obviously it's not because you're doing it right now as CEO of Atlas RTX. I was looking at your website in preparation for this meeting, and I'm quite intrigued by your mission that I'll read off from your website. Our industry-leading chatbots engage your customers automatically, 24-7, 365, allowing staff to focus on high-value tasks only they can perform. The result, effective interactions, desirable outcomes, and improved brand affinity. So all of that sounds really good. Can you talk to me a little bit about, A, some specific use cases on how students were able to benefit from your use cases, from your Atlas RTX solution, but also about we are in higher education. What are some of the challenges or friction that you have to face with existing staff or administrators at universities or colleges? I'll go with the last part first, which is the friction. So the primary friction that exists is inertia. What we do in higher ed, I mean, you've talked about technologies that are being deployed and flipped classrooms, et cetera. And these are all wonderful things but they are not ubiquitous throughout higher education. For the most part, higher education is still the sage on the stage dispensing wisdom in the form of a lecture and students being present there and taking notes and then doing assignments and taking tests. It is very much an analog world still in too much of of higher ed. So the friction is just continuing. We put so much value and emphasis on tradition And that tradition seeps into the way that we also teach, even though there's plenty of research that would say that those, what I would characterize as anachronistic means of teaching are pedagogically inferior to incorporating technology and experiential learning. So the idea of having chatbots help students apply and get financial aid and enroll and get help with sensitive topics can just seem too science fiction-y to too many in an area higher ed that values so much tradition. So I think that is the biggest friction that, that we face. And tenure, like there's also yeah. the, uh, the problem of tenure where faculty members are like, well, I have a tenure or whatever, a lifelong tenure and 
it's very hard to fight that with respect to inertia. That is a fair point. But I can speak to a specific case where we're helping both students and the institution, just reviewing numbers with the institution yesterday. So at Purdue University, at Purdue's Cranert School of Management, the MBA program there, they were struggling with enrollment at Purdue. And the MBA market has softened quite a bit. They shelved their traditional MBA program and focused on an executive MBA, an online MBA, and specialty master's degrees. They were searching for technology to help with this enrollment challenge that they had. And so Purdue engaged with us to do a chatbot focus on helping students get through the admissions process and then get enrolled. And I can cut to the chase on Purdue's side is what they've experienced with us is a 22% increase in applications since engaging with us. And they're really high value applications too. So nearly two thirds of, of those that, that apply through the chatbot meet the admissions criteria and are admitted. Once they're admitted, then we have a bot that can engage with them via SMS, because obviously if they got admitted to Purdue, they probably got admitted to three or four or five other programs too. So by staying engaged with them, once they've applied and been admitted, it drives the enrollment to happen. But where this ends up being really cool for the student is Purdue has a ton of international students. And so international students are able to, again, they can engage because while, yes, they'll have to have a total score that's sufficient for them to meet the admissions criterion, you think about how hard it is to do all of the things that you need to do to get into school, to finance school. It's interesting with all of their international students, how many of those students choose to engage with our chatbot in their native language rather than in English. Because when you're talking about this really technical stuff, you probably don't have the English vocabulary to do it. Or you may not, I shouldn't say probably. And so the option to just start engaging with the bot in your own language, you don't have to go through a menu, you just start chatting in your language and our bot will engage right back with you. So you talk about filling an equity gap right there, it enables and empowers students that don't necessarily speak English, it's not their first language. And so it opens up this process to a bigger universe. And for those undergraduate students, you know, whose parents are helping them, you know, their parents may not speak English at all. So again, it opens up this world to people that might otherwise be cut off from it. That's great. I like the idea of multilingual chatbots. I like the idea of working with students on the admissions process. In fact, we have some initiatives going on internally about smart campus that are similar to that, where our goal is to allow a student to not have to go to a student union and stand in line at the registrar's office to find out if they can change their major or stand in line at the bursar's office to figure out if they can enroll for payment plan or financial aid office to do something. So there's a lot of options there. The question that I'm most interested in is Atlas RTX and how they can truly help students with comprehensive student success. We keep talking about the fact that you know, at best, community colleges have a 12% graduation rate over a six-year period. And frankly, four-year colleges nationwide have a 30-plus percent graduation rate on a six-year period. That means that's anywhere from 70 to 90% of the students are dropping out of college. And that 
is a huge problem because they have to take on a lifelong of debt and that will carry till their death. And we want to fix that. And the only way to fix that is by allowing a student to graduate by giving them all the support they need, whether it's academic advising, emotional advising, any other advising that they need to help them succeed. How can Atlas RTX help a student with comprehensive student success? What distinguishes us from other conversational AI providers is that most of them focus on like one task. So I'd call it a point solution. We're a platform that serves students through their entire student journey from exploration to application. Of course, the, the institution has to admit them, but then we'll support them all the way through to graduation. Since they're engaging with the same platform and this platform knows who the student is, knows what they've discussed before, it is able to engage the student in a way that's not just a bunch of frequently asked questions with canned answers. The digital assistants can engage the student about them and where they are. So it can engage if the student comes in inbound to ask it something, it can answer that, but can also know about a student's progress. And so it can initiate via text messages, messages to the student to help nudge them through, to let them know about that they've missed a deadline or that they're falling out of good progress towards their degree. So by staying engaged with the student throughout their journey, and it does, it moves the needle on outcomes. It starts with being that end-to-end platform that's designed to get the student from just when they're trying to figure out where to go to school to then get them all the way through school. And because it's one platform, it makes it affordable. It's simple for IT to manage. So they're not managing a bunch of different technologies trying to provide this conversational AI for the student. So, but really that's the fundamental reason is because we're with them the whole way. We have all this contextual information about students. That's amazing. I like the fact that, you know, you're making it accessible and you're also making it obviously digital and technology driven, but also personalized because the student is able to stick with the platform and use the platform on a day-to-day basis. Switching topics a little bit, you know, because I'm kind of intrigued by your profile as well, because you've led several non-edtech firms and several million-dollar organizations, probably even a fraction of a billion-dollar organizations, built them from ground up, led them, excelled at them. And now you also done work in higher education. What are some of the challenges implementing these next-gen technologies like AI and ML in higher education versus a typical enterprise? And what are some of the challenges you're seeing or opportunities you're seeing with Atlas RTX? And we do work in areas other than higher education. So we do have the daily to see the differences between the speed with which industry will move and the speed with which higher education will move. So fundamentally, some of the differences and challenges are At a business, whoever owns that particular budget, so say it's the chief marketing officer or the VP of sales, he or she can just make a decision, right? Higher education doesn't work that way. So even if I happen to be best friends with the president of the university, he or she won't make that decision because of our, you know, the term and and it's held with reverence 
And in some cases it should be, and that's shared governance, which I oftentimes joke is just, it's a euphemism for committee meetings and decisions. And that's not fair. There are absolutely reasons for shared governance and I don't want to offend much of the audience here. The decision-making is so slowed down and there are so many constituents that are part of a, a decision that in business would just be made by the chief marketing officer. There's good and bad in that, but what it definitely does is it is really hard to get decisions made, especially about things that are new because you know digital assistants are somewhat new. And so, but if you've got a group of people involved in the decision that span generations of ages, the difference in the way they want to engage is, is very different. So your much younger faculty and staff, many of them are digital natives. So they're like, this is great. But then you've got a big group of those that are not. The technology is, you know, they didn't grow up with it. It wasn't ubiquitous. So it can just be really tough because of the way we make decisions in higher ed. I mean, I think the executive authority that you see in businesses, whether it's from a CEO or CMO or CRO, doesn't work in higher education, sometimes for good, but it's like democracy. It's not about making good decisions fast, but it's really making bad decisions as slowly as you can, I guess. <laughs> but you know, sometimes you end up with a lot of really bad decisions too. Every time I say the word Atlas RTX, I try to figure out what does RTX stand for as CEO of the company? Can you just tell me about the background there on how you came about not only just the name, but also the founding of Atlas RTX? And was it based on some of your previous ventures? I would love to hear the backstory there. I am president here. The founder and CEO is Basam Salem. So Basam founded the company, and I, I knew Basam uh, uh, for several years before he founded uh, uh, Atlas RTX. So the RTX stands for real-time experience. And the so real-time experience for us is that you can get the information that you want when you want it in the channel that you want it. So you don't have to wait for business hours. You're not going to call an 800 number. You're going to get what you need now. And that's what we think that today's students, consumers, that's what they expect. And so you can take organizations, take somebody like Tesla, where you can do everything to buy your car right now. And the only time you're going to engage with a human being is when you go pick up the keys. And that's the type of real-time experience that we think should, should exist for for pretty much everything, but specifically for things that are complex and high stakes, like where you're going to go to college, because it'll be one of the biggest investments you ever make. It's a zero-sum game. If I go to this school, I'm not going to that school. That's what RTX is, is to deliver this really satisfying, effective experience, which is frankly what people prefer. So the real-time experience is definitely very important, especially for students, because they're like my son who's a senior in high school. They're always up at the odd hours. He sleeps at 2 a.m. and wakes up at 7 a.m. sometimes or 10 a.m. But it is very hard to keep up with their schedules. I think the real-time experience definitely is very powerful. And I like the whole concept of digital technology and chatbots. But one of the things that I feel like that gets lost in some of the technology is some of the social issues or emotional issues 
that a student who's a teenager at the time has to go through when they leave their home, which was their home for the last 18 years, into a completely new college campus. And they have to deal with a roommate. They have to deal with, you know, potentially a boyfriend or a girlfriend issue or potentially some other issues that are native to be a college experience. How do you see digital assistance or chatbots helping a student through those emotional and social wellness issues? So I mentioned that humans and and AI are better together. I brought that for the standpoint of faculty and staff working with digital assistants, but we approach our business the same way. So we are not just a software as a service. We have a heavy managed service component of this, where we use a combination of analytics and human knowledge engineers to continually train our chatbots. And we measure our chatbots objectively on both their IQ, so bot IQ, and their EQ, so their emotional intelligence. And so those measurements help our knowledge engineers see where the bot is doing a good job and not doing a good job. And it is amazing how candid people are when they're engaging with a chatbot. And again, it's because there's no human being that's judging them. AI can do tremendous work in helping students deal with those emotional issues, those challenges, and students deal with all kinds of other challenges. One of the biggest reasons students drop out is because of financial reasons. And that is just embarrassing to talk to a human being, especially somebody at the college that has likely has an advanced degree has a middle-class existence. And if you are a student from a low socioeconomic background, it's embarrassing to talk about that, but but it's not to a chatbot. And so we see this tremendous candor that exists when when students engage with the chatbot. But if it was just a set it and forget it, uh, you know, pure SaaS solution, the chatbot wouldn't be able to deal with that because you wouldn't know that you're gonna be asked those kind of questions. So it's this iterative process that allows our bots to be very both intelligent, but also have the right emotional intelligence to engage with students in these areas where they are. That's one of the really cool things about, again, taking care of helping to address equity gaps is this judgment-free area of a chatbot that can actually respond to you. It opens up access to service and help that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be there. That's great. I mean, everything you talk about, you speak with passion and authenticity with respect to not only about technology, but also about education. I want to hear more about that backstory about, you know, what drives you to do what you're doing, both with respect to technology and education. I would love to hear about that, too. As I said before, so I'm a first generation student and I started at community college And I loved how challenging everything was in the classroom. And I think that everything in the classroom should be challenging. Everything outside of the classroom, it should be easy. It should be easy to apply and get accepted and financial aid and and to navigate your way through. But the unfortunate reality is that it's not. Higher ed can be this Byzantine process that if you don't have resources to help navigate you through that, you could end up lost. And so having experienced that personally, and I didn't even appreciate, I didn't know that there was a classification for first generation student. I didn't know what that was until I had finished, you know, at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. So that's a small liberal arts college. 
which was good for me. Being at a smaller place was helpful. And it was a place that was small enough where I ended up meeting the president of the institution who followed my career for a while. And because we were friends and I'd had some success, asked me to be on the board of trustees. So when I became a board member, which I've done now for almost 14 years, I started to really have a front row seat as to what's going on in higher education. And that's where it just hit me that so I could see the disaggregated data. So I'd see outcomes based on, you know, race and Pell eligibility and such. And it just blew my mind that there are all these gaps. So I learned an awful lot by being an engaged trustee. And I also learned an awful lot about how the decision-making in higher ed is so slow and was frustrating to me. And I could see the resistance to change. And so because I found those dynamics so fascinating, I decided to go do a PhD and study those dynamics and see if I could figure out why. And as often happens when somebody does a PhD, I didn't get an answer to that question. I found out a whole bunch of other questions that, that are worth pursuing. All the way along, I have kept seeing over and over how unfair our system of higher ed is. And the colleges that we esteem, we esteem them because of selection bias. If all you do is bring in the, all of the very best students, they're all going to graduate. That's great. But that's not because necessarily because of how you educated them. I have worked really hard to focus on how do we help those non-elite colleges be more effective because they're fighting selection bias too, which is why some of those graduation rates are really low. Well, let's make them more effective. And because I've worked in areas of technology for a while, that's where I'm going to put my focus is, is because I'm much better as, a, as an entrepreneur and a business person than I was when I was a teacher. I was a lousy teacher. So anyway, so yes, I'm very passionate about that. And I think that the private sector has an awful lot to do where we can help higher education do a better job. That's great. I mean, I think it shows that you're very passionate. It shows why you're passionate. I loved your story about how, you know, not only you did your PhD and figured out that you had more questions to answer, but really stuck to it and continued on this trajectory. You're definitely leading the way in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, chatbots, and digital assistants. Where do you see if every institution adopts it or adopts some low-touch, high-efficient practices like you're talking about, where a human is not needed? Because ultimately, we all know that if every bank, when every bank implements an ATM machine, the throughput will be much higher for people to be able to deposit cash and withdraw cash. There's no evidence to say otherwise that humans are better than machines, especially with respect to customer service, student success, and other things. And I like the fact that you're talking about human-machine interface, which is the key for success of all the machines. So if we continue on this trajectory, where do you see higher education going? Can you paint a picture of where we'll be five, 10 years from now? Sure. And of course, like all predictions, it will be wrong but I'm happy to do so. It's, of course, affected by the way I hope that it ends up being too. So the cost structure in higher education, it's unsustainable, which is why it blows my mind that we have a price index. We have the HEPI, the Higher Education Price Index, that's always at least two times what the, the consumer price index is. 
that is unsustainable. And we're really close to the point where we're pricing out most people. And you had Clayton Christensen, who was predicting that half of colleges would go out of business by, I think, 2030. That's not going to happen. They're on an unsustainable financial model. And so things will start to break and other alternatives will come in. And you're starting to see these with Google, who will train software engineers and they don't have a computer science degree. They're learning skills that are very applicable. And Google is one of the best companies, at least most effective companies in the world. So I think that there will be somewhat of a, it will be decoupling what is education from having a degree from an accredited institution and being involved in in helping to run a technology company. I love that idea because a BS in computer science, all it is is a proxy for what somebody knows. But if they've got a series of, of stacked credentials that tell me the technology, that, that that's a lot better information for me to make a hiring decision. So I think that there will be more alternatives that's coming from the consumer of education perspective. If I'm on the, the provider of higher education perspective, there'll be more competition than just the competition that exists today. And that competition will come from nimble, smart institutions that are using technology. I also think that within traditional higher education, because of the cost pressures that they have, because as we haven't made faculty much more effective to be able to scale over larger groups, even with online teaching. And so it's been difficult to have the productivity gains that the rest of industry has had from technology. But if we start to get serious about all those repetitive tasks, and implement technology where we can, we can bring down the cost structure and thus bring down tuition. So it's not necessarily going to be a big revolution that happens over time, but there'll be an evolution as technology comes in and handles all of the things where technology can. I don't know if it's going to happen at Harvard, but I think it's going to happen at the schools that are less selective and that really really need to help their students to graduate. Sure, I agree. I think definitely you're right. Innovation definitely will come from schools that are doing a lot more with less, like community colleges, vocational schools, ASU, Western Governors, Waldens of the world. And in fact, they are already leading the way, whether it's Southern New Hampshire University on their competency-based education program or ASU with their online learning program, they're providing real value. But I think you're also correct that there might be a lot of pure micro-credentials and pure vocational type environments like Coursera or Udemy that will just give them If you want to be an XML programmer, I don't need a BS in computer science for that. If you want to be an API developer, you can just get it by by going through Udemy courses. And we're kind of in the same model as a tech-enabled business ourselves. So I love what you're doing. I love the concept of Atlas RTX and the fact that Atlas RTX is helping the students from act as a digital assistant from enrollment all the way to graduation. I have great hopes for you and your company to be successful and certainly looking forward to hearing more about that. Mike, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to talk to you. It's been a great conversation. I learned a lot on this podcast. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it too. It's been my pleasure. Great. And we'll post all the links to Mike and his company and all these great successes 
Listeners, thank you for tuning in to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.